Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome once again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and if you've not listened to this podcast before, the idea is very simple. I ask various people what five significant personal things from their life they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They can choose four things that they cherish, and one that they find embarrassing, annoying, or unjust, and would like to be rid of by burying it deep in the ground. Most of the people I talk to on this podcast are either connected to the world of comedy or the acting world. Occasionally I get to talk to people from other fields. So I'm delighted to say that my guest in this episode is my first guest from the cricket field. All the great cricket fields of the world, in fact. My guest is the incomparable David Gower OBE. In my opinion, one of the greatest batsmen of all time. Between 1975 and 1993, David scored 26,339 runs in first-class cricket for England, Leicestershire and Hampshire, at an average of over 40 runs per innings. His test average is even higher. He hit 53 centuries and captained England to victory in the 1985 Ashes series. He holds the record of 119 consecutive innings without registering a duck in test cricket. Pretty impressive. Unless you don't know anything about cricket and then you haven't the faintest idea what I'm talking about. Never mind, bear with me. Following his retirement from cricket, he became a very successful and much-loved commentator for Sky Sports and then BT Sport. And was also team captain on the quiz show They Think It's All Over, presented by Des Lynham, Nick Hancock, famously, and then finally Lee Mack, along with Rory McGrath, Jonathan Ross and Lee Hurst. He's involved with a number of charities and helped launch the World Land Trust, preserving rainforest in Belize and around the world. In 2009, he was inducted into the ICC Cricket Hall of Fame. And on the occasion of England's 1,000th test in August 2018, he was named in the country's greatest test 11 by the ECB, which, for those of us who watched him play, comes as no surprise. 
Of course, as indicated, I'm also aware that there will be listeners who know nothing about cricket and have no interest in it. I would urge you to keep listening, not as an education, although it is that, but as an enjoyable piece of entertainment. I mean, let's face it, if you know David, you know he always entertains. So here is the delightful David Gower. Hello, David. How are you? Michael, very nice to see you. Um, yeah, not bad. Not bad, actually. You? Yeah, good. Did you have a good trip to India? Uh, yeah, good in the sense that it was work. <laughs> yeah. They look after you pretty well there. Anyway, Mumbai this time of year, it's the rainy season, so it's chucking it down all day, every day. Right. So you don't go for the sun, um, but that didn't really matter. So, um, yeah, so in fact, I mean, coming back here, people say, oh, you've been to Mumbai. Thanks for bringing the weather back. <laughs> Uh, so, well, no, actually, not quite true because <laughs> no, it was pouring. <laughs> kind of the same temperature, but chucking it down. So, yeah. yeah. I realise I've made a massive mistake with this podcast. Why? Well, I called it My Time Capsule, which means I'm very able to do it like this over the internet. And what I should have called it is Lunch at the Ivy. Ah. And then I could have said, hello, welcome to Lunch at the Ivy. With me today, having lunch at the Ivy, is David Gower, one of the greatest cricketers of all time. So, David, would you like to choose the wine? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, that's right. that's the budget done. That's that gone. Yeah, yeah. But it would be well spent, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, I hope so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, when you restart as lunch at the Ivy, let me know. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Absolutely, you'll be the first guest. Oh, love it. <laughs> Question is whether the Ivy would buy into it. Do you think they sponsor me? That would be the the goal, wouldn't it? <laughs> It'd be the real coup, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. A table by the front door. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, Fence and Stevens at the front door. Endless publicity for them. And yeah, in the background, you saw people wandering by. Oh, Stephen, how are you? That's <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so sorry Stephen. i can't mm. talk to you this week yes but can you come next week yes <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely and you'd have people queuing up well, i might try it before you i'll just uh, let, <laughs> hang on a second let me just phone them first <laughs> so david how lovely to have you on my time capsule it's a, a joy you never stop being a fan that's the great problem with me speaking to sportsmen particularly cricketers you gave me such enormous pleasure in my life that um despite the fact that i know you as a person and enjoy talking to you i can't get over the fact that i'm talking to david gower <laughs> well it's, it's my pleasure too to be honest absolute pleasure i mean we right for people who don't know us as you were yeah quite you know, our backstory you know this bromance you know, our backstory <laughs> what was it we started with dinner in bristol mm-hmm. um with angus deaton yeah where, you know, the height of our careers. <laughs> In our pomp. <laughs> In our pomp. Um, you were filming down there. I must have been playing, I guess. Yeah. And, yeah, we had a very, very, very pleasant... And we probably had a little something in a glass to sort of keep the flow going. <laughs> we did. Um, for quite some time, actually. Does that slightly sum up your career? Well, it, it's a little bit of a cliche in many ways, but it does sort of feel as though there's always been a glass close by somewhere. <laughs> and I suppose the the nice thing actually is as we as we look back on those, you know, those days of our pomp. Mm. In my playing days it's a bit more relaxed I think than it is nowadays to say the least. So whereas if you look at this current England team, there are some very professional, very talented, very very good players. But a lot of whom will look at a glass of wine thinking, well no, not this month. In fact, not this year. Mm. Um and you know, they're their professionalism has has reached new heights, which is very good for them, and wouldn't have been quite so good for me, I don't think. Um, although I suppose you you adapt to the the era you play in. Yeah. But we had people like Botham, Lamb, <laughs> you know, famously addicted to grapes and the rest of it, mm. uh, and a lot of very sociable people. I mean, the late Bob Willis was a very very good man on his wines. I mean, Botham makes wine, or you know, is involved in his own wine company now, and 
I've always said about Ian, he has a very good nose for wine. Uh, it's <laughs> enormous. It does the job very capably. Um, but he does know his stuff. Uh, and Bob was great. You know, Bob used to be a very good man with his wines. And he was the introducer. Um, he must be, what, 40 years ago, give or take. We met this fellow Jeff Merrill in Australia, mm. who is one of the finest winemakers in South Australia, McLaren Vale and a huge cricket fan, and was known, styled himself as the Wizard of Oz. So he had this enormous mop of hair and a massive great moustache and uh, a fund of great stories to go with his winemaking. Bob got to know him first, then we all got to know him, and hence BMW was born, which was both a Merrill Willis, which was a wine that Tesco's used to sell 10 years ago now, Mm. and which led to a great story because Merrill is one of these great people who just believes in himself, has this fund of stories, uh, resists all comers, likes his mates, doesn't like his enemies. Um, <laughs> He's Australian, that's what you're saying, it, isn't it? Uh, that, there is that as well, yes, yes. Very, very much so. <laughs> uh, and when BMW, when someone with a sort of slightly heavy German accent phoned him up one day and said, Mr Merrill, we have a problem. Uh, I understand you're using the, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try and do the accent because that would land me in all sorts of trouble. <laughs> yes. But they phoned up and said, look, um, you, know, you, you appear to be using our name on your wines. And Jeff just said, look, mate, he says, look, as long as I promise not to make cars and you promise not to make wine, we'll be fine. <laughs> uh, and that was that. So uh, anyway, so we have a long long and happy history of combining cricket, wine, um, good people, uh, and it, it lives on. So it's a very, very happy thing. Yeah, yeah, but that sort of um, – <clears throat> the approach to enjoying the whole thing, being mm. involved in these things. I, I was thinking about it last night, actually, and I was wondering – if I'd ever come close to anything like the moments that you would have had in your life involved in cricket, those moments where you, you know, you hit a double century at Lords, um, I only ever hit two, and yeah. both were in Birmingham. Birmingham, that's right, Edgbaston. So Edgbaston, ninety, you know, seventy nine against India and eighty five against Australia. I mean, both important. One was because it was the first one, and it was sort of a year, year and a bit into my Test career, therefore a sort of a big step up. Mm. And the second one was part of what is the proudest year, you know, sort of the Annus Mirabilis, whatever you might call it, uh, the proudest year by being uh, Ashes winning as a captain, as a player. Yes. Uh, you know, everything slotted into place 85. So the, the double hundred there was very much part of setting up the win that set up the series win, if you see what I mean. So um, it had all, yeah, it ticked all the boxes. So, But it's that feeling, it's that sense of doing that, mm. how you regard yourself at that moment. Yeah. You know, I mean, if I've done things on stage or, you know, occasionally <laughs> I've come off and gone, well, I don't think many people have done that. Yeah. And I won't cite them. Oh, please do, please no, do. No, no, you're quite casual about them, in fact, at the time. Mm. You sort of think, well, that was fun. But I wonder if that's the attitude when you're standing in the middle and you raise the bat, you'd say, well, this is what people do. You know, we just raise our bat here because I'm going to go on and carry on batting and I'm, mm. that's what I'm concentrating on. And you don't take the moment in. Well, I think it's half and half. I think, first of all, it's, it's the same as you're experiencing, which is, you know, that's what I do. Um, and there is that sort of nice feeling that, oh, it seems to have gone well or it's, you know, I've got it, got it right this time. Mm. Um, so whether it's the right words in the right order or the right bat in the right order, it's the same sort of feeling, but yeah, it's come together well. I mean, th- those days as a player, because I mean, I'm hoping it's a little bit more sort of even keel as an actor. Um, <laughs> because let's put it this way, if, if you're on, literally on stage and you're scoring the equivalent of a first ball duck, 
Mm. Um, that would kind of ruin your night, wouldn't it? You didn't do that very often, though, did you? Uh, not often, no. Now, come um, on, I read that you, I don't know if you still hold the record, but you certainly I held think the record. I do. You still hold yeah. the record. Is it 119 games in a row, I think it was? I forget I forget what the number, I, I, I don't remember these things, but yeah, the number of games without a duck. It's enormous. It's, it, it's 100 and something, yeah. Um, That's but amazing, then, isn't yeah. it? But of course, for sport, for cricket, for instance, those moments, they resonate instantly, for sure but you're also very much in the moment at that stage. So, yes, you can raise your bat as we used to in a nice, gentle, gentlemanly style, mm. uh, and then you move on because you've got another ball to face um, and you, haven't, you, you can't sort of take the applause to the gallery and milk it, have another encore, you know, play the <laughs> shot again. Um, you, know, you move on because you're still very much in the moment. Wouldn't it be odd if, if cricketers did a lap of honour? <laughs> like an athlete. Yeah, we haven't got time for that. No. Um, but, yeah, so then at the end of the day, you think, well, that was nice, that was nice, that was kind of good. Mm. And then at the end of the series, you look back and you can reflect on these things. And then as you move the clock on, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it might be, then you still remember those things with that sort of warm glow that makes it feel all very much worthwhile. Mm. Uh, and it's also, obviously, when people, I mean, like yourself, when people refer back to these things, it brings back those memories. I mean, I don't sort of look it up every day and go, but you sort of start the morning by sort of <laughs> dialing in 1985 Birmingham. Because, <laughs> of course, it could bring up all sorts of other things as well. Who knows? <laughs> but they stay there with you. So it's, it's, it's always good to have those things. And I suppose on bad days, which we all have, mm-hmm. I suppose on bad days you can, if, you know, if need be, you can say, well, actually, you know, I am still the bloke who got a double hundred at Birmingham in 1985 and won the Ashes. Yes. So I cannot be as worthless as I feel right at this particular moment. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we all, we all draw on our you know, whatever makes us feel good, don't we? Yeah, particularly during those times when, when you were absolutely lambasted by the press at one point. For what? For one flight in a plane? Oh, that was, no, that was a, no, I tell you what, that was, that was a mixed bag because I have, I mean, I, I could sort of take this screen and sort of move it to a little room just around the corner here. Mm. I mean, to commemorate that, we have a, yeah, this is, I'm sorry, it's the downstairs loo. Um, <laughs> but there are cartoons everywhere. I mean, I love a cartoon, I'm a great collector of cartoons anyway. But they obviously went to town on it. Some of them were very affectionate, some of them a bit critical. Uh, the overall response was probably more critical than affectionate at the time, but lots of people actually look back on it now with much more affection than, than critique. But those cartoons bear it out. I mean, there's all sorts. You know, so there's sort of, you know, the, the biplane over the ground, all sorts of comments. And one of my favourites in there is, it was the same time, this is 1991, same time as the Gulf War. So mm. we had British fighter jets in the Gulf at the time. And I think it was in the Telegraph, there was a aircraft identification chart, as it were, <laughs> with two RAF jets, you know, Typhoon, Phantom, identified as such, and underneath a biplane with Gower, <laughs> which sort of kind of summed up the media, which actually, in a sense, puts it in perspective because, and we're, we're still aware of these things now, of course, for all sorts of horrible reasons, but, mm. yeah, there's a Gulf War going on. There are people flying planes for proper reasons and dangerous reasons, and, and you know, all I had was a bit of fun. Yes. Which, in the context of the era, was misinterpreted or, well, it's up to them whether it's misinterpreted or interpreted, but it was interpreted as very dangerous to team spirit and discipline and all the rest <laughs> of it. Um, but actually, the interesting thing is that you know, Graham Gooch, who was captain at the time and was forced to take a dim view, mm. um, we, you know, people, you know, people look at us nowadays, and I was on stage with him at the Oval a few days ago. I was on stage with him on a bigger stage at a theatre up in Yarm a couple of months ago. You know, where you know, any problems that were around, any sort of disagreements, 
differences in philosophy all those years ago are long since buried. Mm. Uh, yeah, we're fine. You know, we enjoy each other's company uh, whenever we come across each other. But it's, it tends to be the fans or the wives. Um, he's changed. Oh, hang on. Click the... Uh, just knocked over the voice recording. Um, so that should come across nicely. Um, there are, yeah, it is the... It is the the fans and the wives who bear the grudge longest. Right. Those two names together, people always cite them as being a great rivalry or a great disagreement, mm. don't they? But yeah. uh, I can't see how you could play together if that were the case. Well, no, you do, but, I mean, because cricket still allows individuals to play as part of a team and vice versa, or, you know, if, if that makes sense, doesn't mm. quite make sense. But you can be an individual, you have to be an individual as a batsman. No one can do it for you. And you can have discussion. It's, it's all a question, I think, of how you have these discussions because... In any group of 11, i.e. a cricket team, for any situation, there'll be at least, you know, six different views, you know, a minor consensus maybe. Mm. Um, and this is the great thing about the game. And the great task for a captain is deciding which of the various options is going to work for the next 20 minutes, two hours, three days, five days, whatever. Yeah. And, of course, there'll always be dissenting voices. So it's, it's, it's how you manage that. You know, I was always trying to be very, not consensual per se, but to allow discussion. Mm. So as a captain of England, I would say to my guys, if you have any ideas, bring them my way. Um, if they're crap, I'll tell you. If they're great, <laughs> I'll nick them. Yeah. Um, you know, bring them my way. At least we can discuss it. At least they're in the open. And any team discussion was very much an open forum. Um, I didn't like this idea of being told what to do in the best of days. Mm. And I didn't like the idea of me just telling 10 people what to do on the off chance I was right. So... You know, getting people together and getting that discussion going was always my key. It was one of my sort of key principles as a so-called captain. So, you know, whether, you know, Graham on that tour in Australia, I think he was much more, um, this is how we're going to do it, um, mm. and there was much less discussion, whether he just wasn't comfortable with discussion or whether he felt he needed to sort of dictate more, I don't know. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a long, long time ago. And yeah, yeah. What a shame you didn't go into politics, though, David. Oh, good God, no. Um, <laughs> trust me, I mean, please, please, please steer me away from that. I mean, those that have dabbled, I mean, the lovely man that was Ted Dexter. Mm. Um, Ted, who could do all sorts of things, you know, apart from playing cricket brilliantly, famously flew a biplane down to Australia for a tour one winter. So forget taking an old 1940s Tiger Moth over a cricket ground for half an hour. Yeah, Ted flew the whole thing from, you know, I don't know where he started, but let's say you know, Farnborough to Sydney or something. Wow. And, you know, popped up and said, right, lads, let's get on with it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what I call, I mean, that's the proper spirit. I mean, I'd yeah. love to have been able to do that, let alone be able to sort of try and do it, even contemplate doing it. And, of course, those days of people who played football in the winter and cricket in the summer, amazing people. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there were a few of those I played with at the start of my career. Um, I mean, that, that can't happen nowadays. There's just not enough time to be that good at both sports. No. Um, and give them the 100% that they all talk about. But nice to look back. Yeah, so the biplane was fun, um, as I say, but not quite... Um, I mean, it was just it was half an hour. Let's face it, it was just a quick half hour. $75 that, you know, plus the fine, which is, what, £1,000 in the end. <laughs> which in 1991 was a lot of money, a I can tell A lot of money, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite, indeed. Yeah. Oh, well, look, we could just rabbit it away but, um, and how pleasant it is, but we should mm. look at the things that you'd like to put into a time capsule. Right, OK, here's... Right, this is going to be very ad-lib. Um, mm. Right, number one... Yeah? You just reminded me about something. Um... My early days were in East Africa, in what was then Tanganyika, is now Tanzania. Mm. And that was the end of my father's long 25 years there, 25 years in what they used to call, well, they used to call it colonial service. You'd probably have to find another name for it nowadays. But he basically spent 25 years in Tanganyika, 
doing his thing. Mm. When we left, we did a tour of the northern game park, so Serengeti, Ngorongoro Crater, Lake Manyara. And our vehicle of choice, uh, not that we had a choice because it's the only one we had, <laughs> was a Cambridge Blue Ford Anglia. Oh, wow. Now, it had been delivered to Dar es Salaam. Um, it was virtually new at the time. We drove it on the dirt tracks. The roof rack would fall off every 20 miles with all the bags on top of it. My father taught me, you know, this is the various words of Anglo-Saxon that you need for the rest of your life <laughs> at that stage. Um, but we had the most fabulous trip. And we drove it round the north, put it on a boat, took it down through Mozambique, which you could in those days, and then drove down through South Africa, ended up in Cape Town, put it on a ship, took it back to the UK, and that was our six when we got back. So I guess 11 years later, I eventually passed a driving test second time round. And this car, which had lasted all the way through all those trials and tribulations, ended up in a hedge in Leicestershire somewhere after a night out. <laughs> and it didn't recover. So uh. um, I have such fond memory. That, that sort of instills the love of things like wildlife, um, Africa. Mm. But for the time capsule, we need that 1963 Cambridge Blue Ford Anglia in there to demonstrate what you can do with a piece of machinery that you know, defied all the odds. You know, nowadays, you wouldn't do it in less than a Range Rover or a Toyota Land Cruiser. Uh, well, I had, had this idea to recreate this trip, actually, for a documentary. Oh, great. Um, yeah. Just self-styled, you know, sort of, you know, Michael Palin's, you know, should really take a rest, I think, nowadays. <laughs> you know, brilliant, brilliant man, though he is, and much, much cleverer than I. But, you know, I'd love to sort of do a sort of a recreation of that journey, but bring in all the sort of the wildlife elements, conservation elements, the political elements, the changing face of Africa. Gower goes. Dot, Gower, dot, dot. Gower goes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so there's, there's your first one. That's brilliant. I saw the other day a Vauxhall Vectra hmm. drove past me, and it's extraordinary how they're just such alien-looking cars, aren't they, in comparison to what you have now? Well, <laughs> there's one or two alien-looking things being designed nowadays, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the, <laughs> so the vintage car, I mean, you can, yeah, I mean, the Ang Anglia would now be an absolute vintage. I drove one a couple of years ago for something else, for Antiques Road Trip, with the lovely man that is Nick Hancock. It looked immaculate. It had one slight problem. It didn't like starting. <laughs> and it would break down in various places. So um, it wasn't quite the ideal road trip vehicle. I miss a car with a choke, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's absolutely, yeah. And then sort of squeezing it back in. Yeah, and... almost as if you have knowledge, which clearly I didn't. Well, you, well at least you know where it is, put it that yeah, way, yes. Yeah, true. Yeah. So um, what did your dad do after he finished in Africa? Well, we... Yeah, we came back, but well, the reason we came back actually was independence. So in 1963, um, that whole sort of triumvirate of countries, which were Tanganyika as it was, Tanzania now, Kenya, Uganda, 62-63, mm. um, all went independent. Um, the Swahili word for it is Uhuru. And my father was given the option of staying on to sort of uh, bridge the gap, as it were, between the old and the new. Mm. Uh, some of his colleagues did. Many, many came home. So we... We ended up, uh, we came back to Kent where the family roots were. And then he got a job at Loughborough. Um, what is now Loughborough University used to be four separate institutions. And the College of Education was the teacher's training college, had a huge sporting reputation mm. and produced footballers, cricketers, rugby players, you name it, uh, and a few teachers. And we went up there, he was registrar. So I then got to use the facilities of the College of Ed for school holidays. You know, for, they, had, they built, for instance, a new sports hall just soon after we got there. So mm. this is, what, a long time ago. I mean, it was state-of-the-art at the time, including indoor cricket nets. Wow. Uh, so my dad would, you know, we'd go down there. So part of my cricketing education was obviously parent-led. 
And my dad would you know, bowl to me for hours in the indoor cricket nets at the College of Ed at Loughborough. If only I'd known it. That's all it takes, is it? Well, it, yeah, well, just a few, just a few hours. <laughs> the irony is that um, you know these honorary degrees that institutions like to hand out now and again. Yes. Oh, well, Loughborough University gave me one of those a few years ago, and I found myself standing on a dais in this same sports hall with you know three hundred students in front of us who really were probably completely oblivious and just you know, looking at their watches while <laughs> some sporting professor read out this long citation i 'm standing it's, it's felt like an hour or two it must be into a whole ten minutes, but at the same time, I was looking around thinking, yes, this is actually very relevant because this is where in many ways a lot of what made my life work started here or was you know, was was helped along here so actually even though I didn't do a jot of work at Loughborough to earn a degree, standing in that same sports hall at that time was very much part of the reason I was there. Oh, brilliant. So not that they really knew it, but uh, you know, there was a link. And did you, when you first came to Kent, did you play at school then? Because I have to tell you, David, I'm in Tunbridge Wells. Ah. Mm. Tunbridge Wells is where I was born, Pembury. Um, so 1957, my mum flew all the way back from Dar es Salaam, so probably four stops via God knows where, sort of Sudan, <laughs> Cairo. Yeah. Well, it probably would have been the, the old BOAC Britannia or something like that. Wow. So I was born in Kent and then, you know, checked over, you know, counted the fingers and thumbs, toes, gave it a few weeks to sort of start breathing <laughs> and went back to Dar es Salaam. But when we came back, we were only down there for about a year and a half. Hmm. But the other piece of the, sort of the jigsaw, the other pieces of the jigsaw were that, you know, they'd taken the view at birth, right, school is going to be in Kent. So Marlborough House in Hawkehurst was prep school. King's School Canterbury was the main school. And despite the fact we now lived several hours away, you know, by pony and trap, mm. the plan stuck. Ah. So the, you know, the first, the first organised game of cricket would have been at Marlborough House. Mm-hmm. And some years later, before I left there, the first hundred was for them. And then, you know, the good work carried on. I mean, to give credit where it's absolutely due, both schools, we had a lovely guy called Derek Whitam at the first one at Marlborough House who was the first 11 cricket coach there who just let things happen. Mm-hmm. And the equivalent at King's was a guy called Colin Fairservice who was equally brilliant. Colin was, you know, again, a harsh but fair coach, smoked a pipe as the umpire at Square Leg or, you know, <laughs> came to Greece, um, but was equally brilliant, just allowing whatever talent I had to flourish. So I sort of have a great debt to both those men for just pointing me in the right direction in those formative years. And it was nice. When I, whenever I went back to Canterbury as a professional player, Colin, some of the masters from Kings, the ones who'd been involved in the cricket, would come down and watch whether I got naught or 20 or maybe 50 or something. You know, it was always just nice to see them. Lovely. And those, you know, those roots uh, are important, actually, really yeah. important. Have you seen uh, any of the Freddie Flintoff programme where he's... He's shaking a bunch of lads who had no idea about cricket and turning them into cricketers or in getting them interested in it. Yeah, I haven't seen the programme, but I saw a clip on Twitter. Mm. A brilliant clip, this guy Adnan. Yes. An Afghan refugee, basically, who arrived, foster parents up in the northwest there and you know, developed the language quickly and made it very clear that actually, you know, forget football, he likes cricket. Yeah. And he, I, I watched it yesterday, actually, as you mentioned. Yeah, I watched it yesterday. Uh, yeah, Fred is very, very good. He's a very sort of man of the people. Mm. He gets on with everyone and anyone. But to watch this Afghan refugee join this makeshift team, and the clip, of course, shows him smashing it over the houses for six. Yes. It's lovely. I mean, it is just so heartwarming to start with. Yeah. And it, 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 to me, it sort of points to the great thing, you know, one of the great things about sport in general, cricket in particular, mm. that it can bring people together. It can give people opportunities. And one of my other roles is 
currently is president of the Lord's Taverners. Right. So the whole Taverners ethos is the underprivileged, the disadvantaged, the disabled mm. being brought together by cricket. And for instance, one of the great things that they've come up with is this sort of table cricket thing, which has been going for a good decade plus now, where the most disadvantaged disabled can sit by a table, like a ping pong table with a rim, mm. and a little cricket bat, and they, you know, they play cricket, and it is brilliant. <laughs> Um, yeah, and just you know, for people who are physically unable, you know, would be unable to walk onto a lawn or a cricket field and play the game that way, mm. they get a chance to enjoy the same sort of feelings around this table. And whenever, whenever you see films of that, you know, clips of that, it's just brilliant. Yeah, fabulous. And it's strange, isn't it? You can enjoy it in the most simple ways. Mm. Either you know, there yeah. you are at Lords, or. As a, a past guest of mine, Michael Simpkins, the actor Michael Simpkins, mm. one of the things he chose to put in was the game Owzat. Did you ever play Owzat? Oh, right. I did. Yes. I did. It's probably, heaven knows where it's got to now. It no. must be, uh, but I did, you're right. I mean, as a, an only child, bless me, um, <laughs> it was one thing, it was one way of passing the time all those years ago. Yeah. Um, and, of course, if your you know, mother or father or whoever wants to have a game with you, you can do that. Yeah, it was just very simple. Yes. It was a great concept. But enjoyed all the all the complication and involvement that you might have in yeah. a game. It's a brilliant yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I went and bought myself another one on eBay, so I suggest you do the same. It's absolutely <laughs> fabulous. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll send you one. Oh, I'll send you God, a game. I can't wait. All right, okay, we're going to put that lovely Ford Anglia. Yeah, okay. Electric Blue into the time capsule. That's your first item. Uh, and I'm delighted mm-hmm. to say that I now know what Uhuru means. Ah, oh, there we go. Which is the name of the communications engineer on the Star Trek. <laughs> well, who knows whether that was deliberate or not? Well, who knows? <laughs> well, we don't, anyway. Somebody can research it, not us. Anyway, let's move on to number two. What else would you like to put in the time capsule? Okay, I think the score is ticking along nicely. We're going to take a short drinks break now while the podcast provider you're listening to this on plays some ads. We'll be back shortly. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
welcome back. Right, the new ball has been taken, so let's see if it moves in the air or has any extra bounce. No, I'm not really sure what I'm talking about either, so let's get back to David Gower and find out what else he comes up with from his amazing life to put in his time capsule. OK, right, what I should do, because I should acknowledge that cricket has been rather good to me mm. and for me. And if I wanted to remember something special, then I would remember that 85 Ashes series. Yeah. And therefore, how best to do that? Well, it's either we put a little replica of the Ashes, which was presented to me not at the time, but a few years later, which is actually a really nice thing to have. Mm. Uh, it's in a little sort of glass globe. So you can either bung that in. Mm. Um, but possibly more personally, uh, the bat. Ah. So cricketers know that the piece of wood you hold in your hands is kind of vital. And you pick up, you get sent bats made by really good bat makers who are trying to do their best for you so you can do your best for them, as it were. And the one I had that year came from a slightly unusual source. Um, at the time, this is sort of, it's, it's one of those sort of secrets that you sh- shouldn't really reveal, but hmm. um, at the time I had a very good relationship with Grey Nichols, the bat manufacturers in Sussex at Robertsbridge, and they are lovely. I mean, there was... Family firm, great bat makers. I mean, it's it's a genuine cottage industry down there. It certainly was then. Mm. Um, so sheds everywhere, <laughs> people with lathes and um, you know, woodworking tools and this, that and the other, just making bats. Amazing. And you could go down, pick them out and say, oh, that one feels nice, bouncer boy, you could have those. But that year, 85, I'd had my delivery of bats and was very happy with them. But the boss's son at Leicestershire at Grace Road, uh, Mike Turner Jr., played a bit of club cricket, I think, at Lutterworth. And he'd been sent a bat by County Bats, County Sports. And I looked at this thing, oh, it's bounced a ball on it, and it felt absolutely brilliant. So I thought, well, this is too good to waste on him. (laughs) Um, Which might sound a bit harsh, but I'm afraid that's true. I think it is, yeah. So I immediately gave him two of mine and said, I'm having that. And you do the thing where you put all the grey nickel stickers on the back of this Hunt's County Sports bat, Mm -hmm. and you make it look like the real thing. And, I mean, no disrespect to Greys at all, and I think they knew this uh, eventually, but it became the bat of the year, the bat of the season. Mm. And it's up in the attic somewhere, if I, if I can identify it in amongst the, the rubbish up there. <laughs> um, but it was it was brilliant. And it's one of those things where it's one of those bats where you just, just touch the ball and it seemed to go miles. And it does wonders for your confidence, because obviously if you trust that, I mean, I'm sure golfers are the same with you know, a particular driver or something like that, but if you have a bat that works... You want to keep it going for as long as you physically can. So I, I play the test matches with it and use other bats in between. And they, were, they certainly weren't bad. Uh, they just weren't quite as good. Yeah. And at the end of a series where you've ended up with a record number of runs and your best ever season, then that's actually quite a special piece of kit. So mm. you know, obviously I have very fond memories of it, um, very fond memories of what it brought. And for that reason alone, I think if you're looking into you know, this time capsule thing, it has to go in. Well, I'm honoured to put that into the time capsule for you. I mean, I have to say that you are, well, really, you're famous for those shots where it mm. looks like you haven't really hit the ball and it goes off the bat like a rocket. Well, that's that was my style and mm. it's, it's what worked for me. I mean, I, I sort of look at the modern game and I remember, you know, people ask me questions, simple questions like, well, would you have been good at, say, something like IPL, you know, 2020? And you think, well, maybe in my own way, but mm. some of the shots they play nowadays, if I tried if, if I tried the equivalent 40 years ago, I would, what they call, lose my shape a little bit. Right, um, yes. So I'd have to kind of relearn things. And it's, you know, therefore, you know, the simple rules, you stick to what works for you. I mean, I was able to make runs in one-day cricket quickly and runs in test cricket pretty quickly too on the best days. 
But what they're doing nowadays is just different league, you know, different, absolutely different. I mean, the, sort of the Johnny Bairstow summer. Records going all the time at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, brilliant to watch, great fun to watch. I mean, I think the clue's in the name, so Big Bash. I'm not sure that that would be your style. No, Big Bash, no, we'd have to find another name for it, rather more gentle. And, <laughs> um, I mean, there are ways. I mean, there are some of the modern players who have done incredibly well in T20s, and I'm thinking of someone like Mahela Jaiwardner of Sri Lanka. Mm who is not a Chris Gale, not the big muscle man, but had immense skill and the ability to find spaces for a cricket ball and timing, which could still, you know, could still hit the ball for six. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people like Joe Root, you know, the lovely, lovely man that is Joe Root. You know, again, he's not built like Chris Gale, but he can find spaces on a cricket field and you know, scoops and all sorts of stuff. You know, these, these people have... You know, they've developed these these talents into something rather different nowadays. Yeah. As well as keeping, you know, someone like Joe has to keep the core that we always talk about, you know, the basics, very strong as well. So, yeah, bless him. Yes, the ability to stay there. Yeah. Yes, yeah. rather than hitting yeah. 45 and that's it, you're out in half an hour. Mm. Yeah, it's a big difference, isn't it? Well, we're going to start a tournament just for players like you then. We're going to call it Fine Glance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I would definitely take that bat okay. and put it very carefully, very carefully, because I think it's, a, it's absolutely part of cricketing history. Okay, good. Marvellous. Good, good, good. Right. Next up, right, here's an idea, right. In order to remember the same thing, in order, when you have a great summer like that, you need to celebrate. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we need a bottle of champagne, uh, which, I mean, it might sound ordinary, it might sound, yeah, I'm sure someone's done it before. We had in those days a very, very friendly relationship with Bollinger Champagnes, <laughs> which, hence a sort of bit of brand allegiance here, and it's lovely stuff. yeah. But lovely fellow called Simon Lachalis, who worked for Mensendorf, was the Bollinger man at Mensendorf. Uh, if the Bollinger tent at Lords was on the nursery ground, so at the end of a day's play, people like Alan Lamb and myself, we could go through the long room, ask, I think his name was Tony, the guy with the keys to the doors that were now locked, who was sweeping up you know, a few sort of recumbent members and all the rest of it, mm. led us across the field. We walked across, joined Simon for a glass or two at the end of the day. It was a lovely, lovely way to wind down. Mm. And through Simon, I met a lovely guy called Rob Hurst. Now, Rob is the agent for Australia, or was the agent for Australia. And he said, mate, I'll, you know, next time you come, there'll be some Bollinger on tap for you. <laughs> and he was as good as his word, because we, we, the next Australia tour, maybe a year or two later, I arrived in the hotel room in Brisbane after, you know, 24 hours on the flight to Sydney and another couple of hours getting up to Brisbane, the first stop. Mm. And there it was, by my bedside, in my room, bottle of Bollinger waiting, a note saying, g'day, welcome to Australia, <laughs> and all the rest of it. And I've, Rob's been a you know, great friend ever since, you know, for the last, what, 30 odd years. I'm not surprised. <laughs> They're quite right, too. And we, we, had, we had one tour down there where I had a worry, Rob, at the start of the tour. We got some supplies organised. And I was sort of carrying around cricket bag, suitcase, and a couple of cases of Bollinger from venue to venue, uh, which, of course, didn't agree with everyone's philosophy. <laughs> uh, but, you know, two for the price of one type of stuff. So, yeah, we, you know, I tried to sort of, you know, coach the likes of Gooch into enjoying a glass. I even actually once at Adelaide, I think I've got a feeling, I think I'm right in remembering this. At Adelaide one day, where I wasn't playing the game, the state game against South Australia, but I was doing 12th man duties. So the mid morning drinks, I took out a tray of champagne. <laughs> <laughs> um, How did they react to that? Well, most of them went, oh, good. You know, uh, one or two were, are you sure? Um, no, most, most got the gag, as it were. So, yeah, actually, so we had a super friendly relationship with Bollinger for all those many, many years. Mm. And, um, yeah, I'm certainly not averse to a bottle now if anyone can find one. <laughs> um, so we collected 
I mean, they have the you know, so the, the vintage, the RD, which is even more vintage, as it were, and the special cuvee, which was you know, still a very, very fine drop. Mm. So if we're going to pick any, and of course, there, I mean, I, I maybe take this opportunity to give an honourable mention to the likes of, you know, Krug and... Absolutely. ...many other houses, just in case they're prepared to send us some. <laughs> um, but, you know, some lovely drops out there. But, yeah, you know, in a sense, we are programmed... I suppose it sounds a bit elitist, but you know, we're programmed to celebrate with champagne. Mm. You know, weddings, someone has to fork out the champagne. If anyone buys Prosecco, I mean, they're shot on the spot. <laughs> yes. There's something about champagne which still equals celebration. Mm. So if we're going to celebrate 85, we're going to celebrate weddings, children, families, happy days, or as Madame Bollinger herself famously said, basically, you can, any excuse will do. <laughs> you know, happy or sad, breakfast, lunch, dinner... Yeah, it's always on. It's always available. So <laughs> I think from that point of view, um, yeah, some people still, I mean, they, you know how sort of images get into the public domain? Well, people still have this image of me, apparently, of liking a glass. So let's just, let's just pound it to the image and put a bottle into the time capsule and mm-hmm. people will understand, I'm sure. Yeah, no, I think, why not? Let's put it in from the ashes year. Yeah, yeah. Let's have a vintage from then. Yes. Interestingly enough, the only other person in all the people I've spoken to has chosen mm. a drink to go in is Richard Wilson. Right. Who chose Houdini Montrachet. Very nice. Very nice indeed. Not cheap, but nice. Well, well, I mean, age is reasonably well. It depends when we're going to open this time capsule. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we need vintage then. We need vintage in order for it to hold its quality. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, but um, he's absolutely the same. I went on holiday with him once and he insisted in Italy he would never drink Prosecco. I'm not drinking that. No. Right. He said, I was in one foot in the grave. We're having champagne. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, before it's too late, exactly. Um, yeah. well, brilliant show that was, too. Absolutely brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, there you are, then. The vintage bottle of Bollinger goes into the time capsule. Yeah. Fantastic. Hardly whatever, That's yeah. three things. Yeah. So we've got two left. One of them is one that you, you treasure from your life, and the other one is something that you'd rather forget. Ah, right, OK. Mm. Um, I'd rather forget the Ashes' defeat of 89, but how do you, how do you put that here? Just, mm. just an empty envelope you know, saying Ashes 89. <laughs> just a globe, but with no replica of the Ashes in it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, what should have been here, but... <laughs> yes, quite. But wasn't. Yeah. Um, I think, actually, in a sense, actually, an empty space, I think, is actually quite a good idea, mm. um, in a very general term, because, let's face it, what, you know, what, what, are, what, what are our regrets... Our regrets are mainly things we didn't do. Yep. So, um, I mean, for instance, going back to flying light aircraft over cricket grounds in Australia, I don't regret that. No. It was fun. It was absolutely great fun. Um, you know, half hour of maybe madness. It might have, might have annoyed people, but I love it. So, yeah, it's fine. So that's, 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 that's not a regret. Um, professionally, you know, the bad times you regret, especially if you know you could have done something different. All those times where... You didn't phone someone or you didn't do something and you regretted it and you keep coming back. Why didn't I do that? Mm-hmm. So actually, you know, an empty box, whether it's you know, an empty box to symbolise all the things that one hasn't done, mm. that one wishes one had done or knows one should have done, mm-hmm. as a reminder, albeit far too late, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a reminder next time that similar situation comes up to actually maybe have a crack at doing it. Yeah, let's not make that box bigger. Yes, yeah, yeah but at the moment, I mean, actually at the moment it's probably a container size. <laughs> if 
Um, I don't know how big this capsule is, uh, but yeah, it's, maybe we can sort of, we can sort of make it just a, a symbolise a small container. I, I hope it's something like the TARDIS, and in fact, I can put really huge things in. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Yeah, but I think I think actually, it, it, it's a very, quite a serious topic. But I think that's that would that, that actually I, I quite I mean I've now grown to like my own I sort of nascent idea. I'm, I'm working on this. <laughs> you're, you're accepting yourself as as having a genius moment. It's very good of you. <laughs> <laughs> No, it is. It's a great idea. It's very true. Because you talk about the things you haven't done, because mm. you can be very proud of the things you have done. And that isn't just cricket. I know we've spoken a lot about cricket, mm. and understandably. But right early on, when you were talking about Africa, and you were saying your love of wildlife, mm. you've been heavily involved in all sorts of charitable work for wildlife preservation, haven't you? In fact, didn't I read that you once worked with Gerald Durrell? Sadly not. It would have been great. I mean, and what a, what a lovely programme it is, the Durrells too, the lovely Miles Jupp. Yeah. Um, another great cricket fan. Yes. Um, uh, not to mention Keeley Hawes, of course. <laughs> I once I once pushed a bottle of champagne towards Keeley Hawes in a filming, um, one of those sort of little spoof things. Um, you know that um, cop thing she did with... Life on Mars. Yeah, or... that sort of thing. They did a sort of special with people like Daley Thompson and me, and oh. I, was, you know, I was the accused across the table, and I sort of go, go well, you yeah. <laughs> Basically, how about if we, you know, rather than sort of just plead guilty, how about you know, share a glass of champagne and you know, can I take you out type stuff? And I actually kind of meant it, but um, it was never going to happen. No. But we digress, we digress, we digress. Um, the man I did know very well, one of the great men in that field, David Shepherd, the wildlife artist. Right. Uh, not to be confused with the lovely umpire from Gloucester, <laughs> uh, not to be confused with the Bishop of Liverpool, slightly different spelling. Yes. But the artist whose works adorn my walls, um, who in fact, I mean, the great thing, when I, I, when I eventually had enough money to indulge myself with an original David Shepherd, uh, went to meet the artist. And he's, well, he was one of the loveliest men you'll ever meet. Um, what a lovely family too. Um, so we got to, you know, he said, well, you know, I have this foundation, the, the wildlife, David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation, uh, which was basically hung around him, as it were, to use a sort of portrait uh, term, mm. very much based on his broad shoulders. Uh, everything they did was based on his art. But there are some super people involved with that. So I've been a, both a supporter, a trustee at one stage, still very much a supporter. In fact, I'm doing a dinner for the Wildlife Foundation in a week or two's time. Mm. It just resonated so much. I mean, that sort of background of mine, which I sort of claim was the sort of the genesis of all this um, love of wildlife in Africa. Um, the synergy with David, who's, I say, just a gorgeous man, who tried to understand cricket, <laughs> came to Lords a couple of times. <laughs> and we had this, you know, we had this sort of a mutual, um, mutual piss-taking, actually, mm. <laughs> which kept us going. But um, sad to have lost him. Mm. Um, the legacy lives on with the artwork that adorns not just my walls, but countless walls around the world. Uh, the legacy lives on with the work the foundation still does, and the foundation then still does its bit in various places, Africa and India, assisting with projects, mm. some of which I've been to see, uh, most of which they get on with happily by themselves, quite rightly. Um, but that's actually one of my other ambitions. The One of the projects they've been involved with is an elephant orphanage in Zambia, mm. and I get a lot of stuff. You know, My Instagram is full of Sheldrick Trust from Kenya, who do all this, you know, taking in orphan elephants and the rest of it. It's just, you know, just tear-inducing. You know, it's just wonderful to see how these things, these creatures, and they're so intelligent, elephants. I mean, but it's just wonderful to see how you can rescue an orphan elephant. And of course, poaching is the worst of it. Droughts can do the same thing. Um, but whatever reason it might be, poaching very much the worst of it. Mm. They can rescue these animals, 
give them a home, give them support, give them love. And then, you know, some years later, they go back into the wild, reintegrate, and try and avoid the fate of their long-lost mothers and fathers. But the, yeah, just, just to see the way these things work is special. So one day, I will go and feed a one-year-old orphan elephant his bottle of milk and <laughs> just admire the fantastic work these people do. Because, you know, the carers, I'm going to call them carers, mm. um, you know, so the rangers, the carers, you know, the people that do all this are just wonderful. How lovely. So would that be the fifth thing you'd like to put in, or is there something else? Well, a baby else? elephant. <laughs> a little baby elephant. <laughs> Please feed it. Yes, Please feed I, it, I, cuddle it, look after absolutely, it. Absolutely, I'll take great care. Um, well, it could be. but no, it, wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't necessarily the plan. I think there's a slight issue putting elephants into time capsules. Yeah, OK. So any idea of something you'd like to put in? Yes. Um, one of the things that I love, one of the things I regret, actually, one of the, one of the empty spaces in that empty box that went into the things we haven't done, mm. is I haven't done enough reading in my life. You know, there's a lot of classic literature which is possibly on a shelf, but you know, remains in pristine condition. <laughs> but lots of things I haven't read. Uh, but of the things I have read, the sort of stuff that I... I mean, I'm actually currently reading a Lucario, an old Lucario, the Russia House, and just you know, remembering how he used to write, which I haven't read for 20 years. Um, but the stuff I like is sort of the Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams style, of quirky, funny, wordplay, wonderful, weird ideas. Mm. You know, the, I mean, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, one of the best ever. Yes. And Terry Pratchett books, every one of them that I've read, and I've read hundreds of them, it feels like. You know, mm. they are, every sentence has something in it. Just that, you know, play on words, play on ideas. And they're books which you can skim through at your peril. Yes. Because you need to look at the way that sentence is written <laughs> and, yeah, and go back again. Actually, you have to do it the same way with Le Carrier as well, but you need to look at these, the way these things are written. Try, and I can't remember them. That's the trouble. So I need to keep rereading them. Uh, my favourite Pratchett is the pen is mightier than the sword, but as long as the sword is very small and the pen is very, very sharp. Yes. But that's exactly the observation that made Terry brilliant, mm. absolutely brilliant. And there's a word that comes in between absolutely and brilliant that highlights it. You know, it's just, <laughs> yeah. Did you ever meet him? No, I didn't, oh. sadly, um, with the hats. Well, I've read quite a number of audiobooks for, for Terry over the years, and uh, he, oh, was, he was a marvellous man, absolutely brilliant man, very funny. I did meet Douglas Adams ever so briefly. Mm -hmm. um, can't remember where now, but it's way, way, way back. We must have sort of coincided at a book launch or something. Mm -hmm. So I, have a, I do have a signed Douglas Adams, but sadly it's not Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm. So yeah, I have this dilemma. You know, I can't just bung them all in. It might have to be the, you know, the the Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah, fair enough. Which, of course, has spawned TV series, has spawned magic, you know, wonderful films. Yes. But he's always, I think, best in that book form. Yes. Even the first, the original radio series, which is brilliant. Yeah. It's still better to read it yourself, I think. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's, it's nice to see it interpreted, but your own images... Your own, as it were, voices imposed on the book. Mm. I think, yeah, they're all part of the imagination, all part of what makes it a you know, proper experience. And, yeah, I mean, trying to pick one book out of millions yeah. for something like this, I suppose, I think, it's, I think it's suitable because we all have our serious moments. You know, there's some very serious things we have to address. Mm. But it's the sort of thing that just sort of eases our way, our passage through life. So if you're going to sort of remember something, mm. pass something on, you know, might, I mean, if, if someone opens this capsule in... You know, thousands of years' time. And let's just imagine, you know, we've colonised Mars by then. <laughs> the man on Mars is not just Matt Damon. No. <laughs> uh, you know, growing potatoes. Um, but let's imagine there's, you know, there's a bit of an issue out there. And they think, oh, sod it. What's in that time capsule? And you can imagine them going, well, Mars is just about to be you know, hit by the universe's bigger ever meteor. But look, I'm reading this book called you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There must be a way out of here. 
And failing that, we'll just have a bit of a giggle before we go. Yes. So there you are. That's, that's my service to humanity in God knows how long time. Well, you've done plenty of services to humanity, I have to say. <laughs> and one of them, I think that maybe the very fact that things you've chosen, they sort of in a way reflect your playing style. I love the fact that, mm. as you say, there are very serious things in life. And playing in an ashes, that is a serious thing. But mm -hmm. it's not the end of the world. No. And you always had that moment in your innings and always had your moment in your captaincy, which reflected that, that little cheeky, you didn't expect that, did you? And I can't wait, I really can't wait to record my guest today at the Ivy is David Gower. <laughs> <laughs> well, that can't be a good lunch, can it? No. <laughs> mm. David, absolutely brilliant to talk to you. Thank you very much. Absolute joy, my pleasure. have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, David Gower. If you had fun, then there are plenty of other episodes of My Time Capsule to listen to anytime, particularly if you subscribe to this podcast. Do tell your friends, and you could tell strangers by rating this podcast and maybe even leaving a short but friendly comment or review. Do follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook so you can keep up to date about our guests and, if you want to, contact us with any questions you may have or even suggest a future guest for us to chat with. We try to be as friendly as we can, so please follow suit. If you like the theme music, you can listen to it anytime on Spotify. It was written by Pass the Peas Music, which is always going to be a challenging pub quiz question, isn't it? This was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, thanks for listening, especially if you're listening in a country that doesn't play cricket and therefore hasn't the faintest idea who David is and why what he's done is so impressive and has listened right the way through without really understanding anything we've said. For anyone like that, here are the famous rules of cricket. You have two sides, one out in the field and one in. Each person that's in the side that's in goes out. And when they're out, they come in. And the next person goes in until they're out. When they're all out, the side that's out comes in. And the side that's been in goes out and tries to get those coming in out. When a person goes out to go in, the players who are out try to get that person out. And when they are out, they go in. And the next person in goes out and goes in. Also, there are two people called umpires who stay out all the time, and they decide when players who are in are out. When both sides have been in and all the players have got out, and both sides have been out twice after all the players have been in, including those who are not out, that is the end of the game, which often ends in a draw. Got it? Good. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.